we found out this room can sing, we'll uh, find out if it can preach. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 5. We've been in a series in the book of Ephesians. We come this morning to verse 22, but we're going to start reading in verse 21 on down through verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Please follow along as I read. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body. And is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and that it speaks clearly and unequivocally. You have been pleased to reveal yourself to us and to reveal your will for our lives We pray now that as we come before this text, you would give us willing hearts to receive the truths of this passage. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us Bible people who love your word and seek to be formed and fashioned and shaped by it all the days of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When we began this series in Ephesians, um, it was, I believe, late May of last year. Uh, and a couple of months prior to that, I had begun studying Ephesians and preparing uh, an outline of the book and planning a preaching series of the book. And at that time, I tried to sort of parse out the book into the number of sermons that I would endeavor to preach and thought ahead even into chapter 5 and chapter 6. And uh, at that time, now over a year ago, uh, the original plan was to give one sermon to Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33, being sort of a self-contained unit on the Christian vision of marriage. Uh, But then, as it's been my pattern now since we've been in the series, about four or five or six weeks in advance of a text, I'll sort of just look ahead and think in my mind, okay, how, you know, how should this text be opened up? What would be helpful and good for our congregation? What would be responsible with reference to the text itself? And as I did that a little over a month ago, looking at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, I concluded it would be best for our congregation and uh, best for me in opening up that text faithfully to give two sermons to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And 
Then last week and this week, as I've been studying this text, uh, I've concluded that we should spend three weeks in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, slowing down and uh, handling this text with a great deal of care. No promises that it won't turn into four weeks, but I don't anticipate that it will. So we'll be spending three weeks on this text, and I thought it'd be helpful for me to explain why we've adopted, this, or I've adopted this approach of spending more time in these verses than originally planned. Uh, there are really four reasons uh, why I would like to do that. The first is because Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is a glorious text. It's a wonderful text. There's deep theology in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. There's clear instruction. There's sweet gospel. Uh, this really is sort of like the crown jewel of the Bible's teaching on the church as cherished and nourished and loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has become over the years one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. It's just a glorious text. And so I want to slow down, squeeze out every bit of blessing we can get out of this passage. A second reason, because in our day, uh, this text has been surrounded by controversy. In our day, this text, Ephesians 5, has become surrounded by controversy. I was going to say that this is a controversial text, but it's not. It's a text that's surrounded by controversy. Uh, It has become a text that invites criticism and controversy. But the text itself is not controversial. It's actually very direct and straightforward. We don't get any sense in Paul's mind that he's saying anything that would be remotely controversial to Christians of his day. In fact, I'm convinced that if this text provoked any controversy at all in Paul's day, it would more likely have been over how progressive Paul's views of marriage are rather than how restrictive they are. But more on that later. I recognize there are challenging questions surrounding this text, and we want to answer those questions and address those questions with great care and attention. Third reason, because I believe getting this passage right is of immense importance for us, of tremendous importance for us, Emmanuel Church, for our well-being, for our flourishing, not just as spouses, but flourishing as families, flourishing as children, flourishing as single men and women, flourishing as a congregation. This text is of paramount importance for us as a fellowship of God's people. And then the fourth reason sounds the same but slightly different. Because this text, I believe, is of timely importance for us. It's of timely importance for us, like like today, March 18th, 2018. Timely in at least a few ways. First of all, to my earlier point, few aspects of biblical traditional, historic Christianity are more under attack in our culture today than the idea, the mere idea, that there exists a difference between men and women. Let alone the idea that uh, a wife within marriage ought to submit to her husband. So I can still remember it like it was yesterday, freshman year, Clemson University, Hardin Hall, Philosophy of ethics class, we were sitting in a semicircle, professors here, a semicircle like this. I'm right there, and there he was, directly across from me, transfer student from Bob Jones University. We're talking about gender and sexuality in the class, and uh, I can remember, it's like I I had this premonition three or four seconds before he said it, that he was going to go there. And uh, this young man was bold enough to suggest that there does exist a difference between men and women. 
Uh, moreover, it was his conviction that a wife should submit to her husband. And um, maybe you've had this experience. You're in some rooms. You can feel the energy immediately change. And I especially remember this one girl. She was a very small girl. And she rose up in her chair. And all eyes looked over at this guy. Like, like that is so repulsive. How could you think that? How could you say that? And I'm convinced that if that professor was not in the room, they would have killed that guy. Uh, if they had garbage in their hands, they would have thrown it at that guy. And there was just this, this vitriolic response to that suggestion that there existed a difference between men and women. Don't commend the way the guy went on to make his point, but I commend to discourage. Another reason why it's timely for us, I think, is because few things are more broken in our culture today than godly male headship. Few things are more broken in marriage and in the family than godly male leadership and headship. Biblical masculinity in so many churches even is MIA. It's missing in action. Or we can say MII, missing in inaction. Uh, it's just hard to find godly, loving, servant leaders, Christ-like men who lead their homes well. And so this message, this text, is God willing going to be timely for us. The final reason why I believe this text is so timely is because the stakes are so high. The stakes are so high in our day. And what do I mean when I say that? Well, don't misunderstand me. What's at stake in conversations about biblical gender roles within marriage is not primarily the maintenance of the moral fabric and backbone of traditional Western values. If that is where these conversations terminate, we're missing the whole point. The stakes are so much more high than traditional Western values and sensibilities and manners. What is at stake in this text is the gospel itself. And where do I get off saying something like that? Well, from the text itself. Because what we learn in Ephesians 5 is that this text uh, tells us of the mysterious complementary relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And that that relationship is meant in some way to be a living, dramatic depiction of the relationship between Christ and his church. What is at stake is the gospel. Specifically, the dramatic display of the gospel in biblical marriage that the world was meant to see and the world must see. Listen, the world so badly needs to see wives who are humbly and selflessly and joyfully responsive to their husband's leadership as the church is responsive to Christ. There's a picture being portrayed there. And the world so badly needs to see husbands who lovingly, sweetly, tenderly lay down their wives excuse me, lay down their lives for their wives as a depiction of the self-giving love of Christ who laid down his life for sinners and for his church. I can give a rip about traditional Western values, okay? We're in this for the sweet gospel. Uh, We're in this for uh, the God-honoring, spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting Christian marriage that displays to the world and to the cosmic powers the gospel itself and Christ's relationship to his church. So those are my reasons for taking a little more time. So we're going to be in this text three weeks. And each time we're going to be asking a different question of the text. First, this morning, we will ask the question, what does this text teach us about the distinctive role of women within marriage? What does this text teach us about the distinctive role of women within marriage? And then 
Next time, which actually will be April 8th, next week Robert Fisher will be here. The following week we'll be celebrating the resurrection. And then on April 8th, God willing, we will ask the question, what does this text teach us about the distinctive role of men within marriage? And then third, God willing, on April 15th, we will ask the question, what does this text teach us about Christ and his church? What does this text teach us about Christ and his relationship to his bride The church. So today we're asking the question, what does this text teach us about the distinctive role of women within marriage? I've become so fond of saying that we want to be Bible people. I want to be a Bible person. Do you want to be a Bible person? Do we want to be Bible people? Well, that might be hard for some of us to do in this day and age when we come before a challenging text like this. So let me just encourage you up front. I mean, let's just just settle it. Whatever God says is right. Whatever God says is good. It may not know all the reasons. It may not comport with social and cultural trends today. But whatever the will of the Lord is, I want to do that. Be part of that. If it pleases Him that I eat grasshoppers for the rest of my life, I'm going to do that. If He reveals that, thank God He doesn't. But we have this posture that whatever God says is right. Whatever He calls me to. I want to do for his glory and to his praise. I pray to God that that is your posture. And if it's not, I pray that in these next few moments it will be. All right, so here's the question this morning. What does this text teach us about the distinctive role of women within marriage? Look again at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so let me just throw out a few initial observations, kind of sitting on the surface level of this text, sort of contextual things we should have in our minds before opening up the text itself. First observation, don't forget, especially if you've been with us in this series up to this point, don't forget that this command, that wives submit to their husbands, comes in the context of Paul's admonition that all of God's people submit to one another. Verse 21 says that. The spirit-filled person will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and the fear of the Lord. There are some contexts in which husbands should submit to their wives. Christians in the church, male or female, young or old, should practice mutual deference. Lay down their lives for one another. There's a principle in New Testament Christianity that we submit to one another. And and we're happy to defer to one another. We're happy to serve one another. Well, that's the context in which this particular command to wives is given. Just remember that. Have that in the back of your minds. Second sort of surface level observation. Perhaps it's worth noting up front that clearly there exists a difference between men and women in Paul's mind. That's just not a refutable point. There exists a difference in the Apostle Paul's mind between men and between women. Men and women, quite demonstrably, are different biologically. Uh, They are different in how God has uniquely designed and fashioned them. They are different in terms of roles within the Christian family. Now, there's a point I feel I need to make. It's not in the text itself, but if Paul were here, I think he would certainly agree. I know he would certainly agree. Maybe it's a point I don't need to make, but then again, maybe it's a point that I, I do. And that is that though there exists a difference between men and women in terms of roles within the home and within marriage, 
There is no difference in terms of value, worth, and dignity before God and before others. So men and women are equal before God. They're not the same, but they are equal. And listen, that's not mere semantics. That's not just verbal gymnastics. Okay? That's a great fallacy of our generation, that, that, that just because I'm different from you, that, that must mean that we're not equal. If there exists a difference between you and myself, well, then we can't be equal. That's wrong. That's a fallacy. Just because there are differing roles in marriage, differing traits that men and women might have between each other, does not imply a differing scale of value before God and before others. Wives are not ontologically inferior to their husbands. That means with respect to their being. They're not viewed as any less before God. The reason I say that is because if that were the case, it would mean that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, would be ontologically inferior to God the Father. Because 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 uses the same word, submit, with respect to the Son. The Son is subject to the Father. He submits to the Father. And yet we know there's no scale of value in the Trinity. God the Father doesn't possess greater value and worth over the Son. We love to confess here as a church that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are of the same essence. All part of the Godhead. And just as there is functional subordination within the Trinity, so it is in marriage. So I reject that logic outright. That says that difference of role implies inequality of value. The Bible does not teach that. But a third uh, observation, final observation, kind of on the surface of the text. And this is a, a contextual argument. Paul's views in this text, I'm convinced, would have appeared radically progressive in his day. Radically progressive. Not restrictive. Not conservative. But radically progressive. Some people think of this text as presenting a restrictive view of marriage, and maybe it would appear that way in our day, but in Paul's day, that would not be the case. And this is a matter of history, a matter of historical fact. You search out ancient literature, and there is no picture of marriage like the one you find in Ephesians 5. It was assumed in many cultures as a first principle that men were inherently more valuable than women. In many cultures, women would have been treated as slaves or as Property. The idea of verse 21, that men and women might mutually submit to one another, would have been viewed as incredibly radical in the first century and even immoral to many. Uh, the philosopher Aristotle's views of marriage was probably the most charitable toward women in those days, but even his views primarily had to do with social harmony in the home with reference to the state. If you have bad families, that will yield chaos and disorder to the state. It said nothing of the value and worth of women before God and before the world. And then Christianity breaks in and says to women who had been treated like little more than property, do you know that you are dearly loved and prized by God? And did you know that you ought to be dearly prized and loved by your husband? And did you know that in fact he ought to lay down his life for you? and sacrifice himself for you, and give himself for you. That would have been radical in those days. There is no picture of marriage in ancient literature that corresponds to Ephesians 5. The idea that a husband would be a servant leader and lay down his life for his wife would have been 
utterly radical and unthinkable to the ancient mind. No portrayal of husbands in ancient culture that comes close to approximating the views of husbands in Ephesians 5. And there is no view in ancient culture of the dignity and worth of women that rose higher than that of the Christian faith. That is why I say that in Paul's day, his views would have been radically progressive. And beyond that, I'm just going to say it. There is nothing that has done more to elevate the dignity and status and worth of women throughout the world than the Christian faith. That's not a refutable point. And there is no worldview with a higher estimation of women than the Christian worldview. When it comes to personal dignity and worth and status and value, listen, the Christian woman's understanding trumps that of the secularistic, atheistic, feministic woman. I just want to say for my sisters here, if there is anything in your heart approximating envy over the lot of, of, of uh, atheistic uh, uh, feminists in the world, I just want to disabuse you of that. I want to liberate you from that. You have nothing to envy. Listen, being a Christian woman, the dignity and status and worth that accord the Christian woman is the highest possible statement of the value and worth of a woman in the world today. To the Christian woman, she is made in the invisible, in the, excuse me, the image of the invisible God, which is a fact in and of itself that implies untold glory and value and worth. The Christian woman has been adopted by God himself and is thus considered a daughter of the living God. A Christian woman is filled with God's spirit. A Christian woman is regarded as exceedingly precious to the Lord Jesus Christ, firstborn from the dead, who rules over all. He counts the Christian woman to be a precious possession in his sight. And the Christian woman, the Bible teaches, will one day inherit the earth, rule alongside of Christ for all eternity. So what is there to envy? To the, to the consistent, uh, secularistic, naturalistic, atheistic, feministic woman in the world today, if she's consistent, has to conclude uh, that she evolved from, I guess, goo or something, and therefore cannot possess any inherent value. In fact, to the naturalist, the idea of inherent value is abhorrent and heinous. There's no such thing. It's nonsense to speak of inherent value. Now, no, no, this is not true in fact, but in the secularist self-consciousness of herself... She is not stamped with the image of an invisible creator. She is. She just doesn't know it. She's not assigned status and dignity and worth before God and before man. Not in her worldview. And therefore, she has no great creator and supreme being who views her as inherently valuable and beautiful and glorious and wonderful. And moreover, there's no supreme being who demands that others... Acknowledge her as valuable and beautiful and glorious and a great display of the creative and loving power of God. Now tell me that Christianity devalues women. It's not true. Nothing has done more to elevate the status and worth and dignity of women than the Christian faith. So those are some initial observations on the surface of the text. Now there's three points I want us to see as we go through these verses together. And have no fear. You may think I'm just getting to my outline now, but we'll move through these points very quickly. Uh, Three things I want us to see in verses 22 through 24. First of all, we want to notice the call. The call to wives. 
Second of all, the motivation. What motivation is given to heed the call? And thirdly, the model. The model provided. Okay? The call, the motivation, and the model. First of all, consider with me the call to wives in Ephesians chapter 5. The call is very simply, wives, submit to your own husbands. The call is to submit to your own husbands. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We've talked about this a little bit already, but the idea of submission uh, doesn't always have the same overtones, the same resonance uh, to Paul as it would have in our day. The idea of submission has to do with assuming one's place under an established hierarchy of roles in order to achieve harmony and order. So one commentator writes this. At the heart of this submission is the notion of order. God has established certain leadership and authority roles within the family. And submission is a humble recognition of that divine ordering. So don't have in your mind servility or obsequiousness. Have in your mind the recognition of an established and highly functional ordering of roles and finding your place within that order. That's the biblical idea of submission. Uh, P.T. O'Brien says this, of this idea of submitting to your husband. The form of this particular verb, submit, the form of this particular verb emphasizes, listen, the voluntary character of the submission. Paul's admonitions to wives is an appeal to free and responsible persons, which can only be heeded voluntarily, never by the elimination or breaking of the human will, much less by means of servile submissiveness, end quote. So listen, this command, wives submit to your husbands, it is a voluntary command, not an optional command, if we want to please Christ. It's not optional, but it is voluntary. And by that I mean Paul is appealing to the wills of Christian wives. And saying, this is pleasing to Christ that you submit to your husband. Well, all I want to observe here is that no woman can be subjugated and coerced into honoring and affirming her husband's leadership. It's an appeal to her that only she can heed and she can obey as pleasing to Christ. I'm going to do this. It's a disposition of the heart. I'm going to submit to my husband. But don't hear in this language the idea that that husbands or pastors or society in general can coerce women into doing anything. No, it's a voluntary, free submission to her husband. Not optional if we want to please Christ. But it is voluntary. It's an assent of the wife's will. This is not a call. To submit to men generally. The Bible never teaches that women are to submit to men generally. Rather, they are to submit to their own husbands, the text says. Who are women to submit to? Verse 22 says, to their own husbands as to the Lord. And maybe this is a point I don't need to make, but, but maybe again it is. That there is no teaching in the Bible that women in general should just submit to men in the wider culture. It's not taught. The idea of submission really only comes into effect here within the Christian marriage, submitting to your own husband. So let me just say this to girls. If you find yourself one day dating uh, a guy, and he suggests to you that you ought to submit to him because uh, you're a woman and he's a man, and women ought to submit to men generally, you run from that man. That man doesn't have a biblical leg to stand on. And rather, such views are destructive and dangerous. The Bible never teaches 
That women just need to go through the world submitting to men wherever and, 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 and whenever. That I just have to just, wherever I go, I have to be obsequious. I have to be quietly acquiescent. I have to, oh, hmm, you know, uh, whatever you would like. Okay? That's not a biblical idea. That's never taught in the scriptures. Submission to husbands is. But to, submission to men generally is never taught. And women, I'll say to you here at Emmanuel Church, if there are men in the church who expect that you are to submit to their opinions and perspectives and desires simply by virtue of the fact that they are men and you are a woman, you come and tell your elders and those men will be addressed accordingly. It's not a biblical teaching that women just obsequiously submit to every man everywhere. No man has headship over all women generally simply by virtue of the fact that he is a man. That would be a perversion and distortion of this text. Now, sisters, I'm talking to you according to 1 Peter 3, 4. Beautiful text. According to that text, women are to possess a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I I pray that you love that text. You treasure that. This is precious in the sight of God that I possess a quiet and gentle spirit. However, don't be confused. That text is not calling you to allow yourself to be pushed around and subjugated by other men. Just going through life, submitting to men whenever and wherever. And such a text is not a call to be passive, to be unopinionated, and to be inactive. Just to acquiesce to male demands wherever you find yourselves. Now the Bible does call wives to submit to their husbands. The Bible calls all of us to submit in All sorts of ways. So wives, hopefully this is clarifying for you. There are really four categories of people you ought to submit to. Four categories of men you ought to submit to. Three of these men themselves ought to submit to as well. One is unique to wives. The Bible teaches there are four categories of persons, four categories of men women ought to submit to. First of all, the Bible requires you to submit to Christ above all. You submit to that man, Christ Jesus. Submitting to him, acknowledging his leadership and living according to that leadership. And that's common for every Christian, male or female. Of course, as our text says, wives, secondly, you're to submit to your husbands. That's unique to you. Okay? Thirdly, the Bible speaks of submission to elders in the local church, those who lead in the church. Hebrews 13, 17. Uh, it says, obey or submit to those who rule over you in the Lord as those who will give an account. Again, common to women and to men. Submitting to godly leadership in the church. And then the fourth category would be the governing authorities. Or the state. Which in our days reflected both men and women. There's submission to God-ordained authorities in the state. But our text is addressing submission to husbands. So positively now, what does it mean to submit to one's husband, biblically speaking? Well, I find the following definition from John Piper to be generally helpful. And uh, by the way, I don't share that name because uh, we like to name drop here. Uh, I just think, if I'm going to be honest and fair, these are his thoughts. They're not original to me, and so I want to cite him. This is his definition of what it means for wives to submit to husbands. He says, quote, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership And to help carry it through according to her gifts. So let me say that again for those of you taking notes. Submission is the divine calling of a wife. To honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through 
according to her gifts, which I'll just say may be greater than her husband's. And nonetheless, she carries it through according to her gifts. It's this divine calling. God has called this woman to assume this role. And it's a calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help in realizing that leadership and carrying that leadership through through the unique gifts that she contributes to the marriage. Let me be clear on what this definition is not saying. This definition does not teach, and the Bible does not teach, that women may not disagree with their husbands. My wife and I disagree on all sorts of things, okay? Some of them mundane and, and superficial and unimportant. Some of them really important. It's okay to disagree with your husband. The Bible never uh, 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 permits, uh, excuse me, uh, 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 commands against that. This definition, this idea does not teach that women may not contest their husband's opinions and decisions. Listen, it's legitimate and sometimes even wise to say to your husband after a bad decision has been made, I, I don't think that's right. I think we made a mistake there. I don't think that was an example of great leadership. Okay? That was a bad financial decision. Uh, that, that, this was a bad choice. Not really sure I agree uh, uh, with what we've decided to do in this area of discipline with the kids or something like that. The Bible does not teach against them. Uh, it is not wrong for a wife to give her input in the decisions of the home and to even contest sometimes her husband's decision-making or his opinions, his ideas. Moreover, this definition does not teach that women may not take a lead in certain family decisions. It's not wrong for a husband to defer to his wife. Hey, here are three or four homes we could purchase. Um, I, you know, I, I, just, I think it'd be great if you made the call on this one. They're all fine with me. I don't think we're making a mistake. You can take the lead in this. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it being the other way around. A husband may say, hey, look, I've decided it's legitimate. It might be good to send our kids to public school or private school or even to homeschool. But, honey, this is going to involve you in such an intricate way. I'm going to let you be the determining vote on this one. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible doesn't teach Against that, wives may lead out and take initiative in certain decisions in the home. Also, this definition, this understanding does not teach that women may not be more opinionated or outspoken than their husbands. Got to be careful here. No one, no one uh, ought to be uh, uh, in an abrasive and aggressive way, really outspoken and really opinionated. That's just obnoxious in anybody. Okay. But it's legitimate. If some wives are just more opinionated than their husbands. They've studied more than their husbands. They're more articulate than their husbands. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But positively, remember John Piper's words here. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. And to help carry it through according to her gifts. Now secondly, I want you to see the motivation that Paul provides. The motivation. And that is because doing so pleases Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This pleases Christ. Those four little words in our English Bible, as to the Lord, three words in Greek, just fill and expand this passage with motivation. This is so crucial, and I think it's really liberating to see. Wives, in submitting to your husband, you are submitting to Christ. Not in the sense that your husband himself is the Lord. That's not taught in the Bible. But in the sense that he's placed you in your marriage. And he's called you to submit to that particular spouse that God has given to you. That particular husband. Christ has sovereignly positioned you in your particular marriage under your particular husband. And his will for you 
is that you submit to that man. And you can know that in doing so, you're honoring Christ. Now notice, no condition is put on this exhortation to submit to husbands. You don't submit to your husband as long as he holds up his end of the bargain. Okay? Okay, I'll submit to my husband as long as he proves to be that sort of Christ-like leader that God's calling him to be. Isn't it interesting the way this text unfolds? I really love this as a pastor. There's direction given to wives, verses 22 through 24, wives submit to your husbands. And then there's direction given to husbands. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. Love your wife. Notice, Paul doesn't tell wives to be concerned with the husband's instructions. And God doesn't tell the husband to be concerned with the wife's instructions. So, so the idea is not uh, uh, to the wife. Submit to your husbands and demand that your husband provide loving headship. And Paul doesn't say to husbands, love your wives and demand that they submit to you. Now, you parents know what this is like, right? You have two children that come to you and, 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 and your son, they've, they've had an argument, they've had a fight or whatever. They come to you and your son says, uh, 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 she provoked me. And so I hit her. And she says, oh, no, 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 mommy. He's been impatient with me. He's being impatient. And what do you do? You talk to both of your kids singly and you say, son, you need to be more patient. You say to your daughter, you, you should not provoke your brother. Okay? Don't, don't berate him and annoy him. Okay? Then they go away. Five minutes later, come back into your room. And they're complaining again of the same thing. And what does your son say? She provoked me, Mom. Just, and remember, you told her not to provoke me, and then she did it again. And what does the daughter say? He, he's not patient with me. He's not loving toward me, right? And yet, how often do we act just like those children? If you were in the counseling room with most couples struggling in marriage, it normally is, well, he's not holding up his end of the bar. Oh, and she's the, you don't know what I have to deal with at home, Pastor. I mean, I can't lead that. She just nags me all the time, right? It's, 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 you know, get on her for what she needs to do and get on him for what he needs to do. And yet that's not how, Paul won't let us do that according to this text. He addresses the wives. You have a calling from God and this is how you can please Christ. And he addresses the husbands and you have a calling from God and this is how you can please Christ. And so wives... I encourage you, don't be like those children. These instructions are for you. Regardless of whether or not your husband is an exemplary Christ-like leader, your responsibility before God is to be the sort of wife God is calling you to be in verses 22 through 24. Listen, God will deal with your husband. He'll deal with him. That's not to be your main concern. It is before his own master that each one stands or falls, the scriptures say. In this text, Paul is calling wives to gladly submit to their husbands because it is pleasing to Christ. Listen, your husband may be a poor, ineffectual, and inadequate leader, but Christ still calls you to lovingly and gladly submit to that man, and it pleases Christ when you do so. You just know, I'm enjoying the smile of Christ. I may not be enjoying the most Christ-like marriage, But submitting to this man is pleasing to God, honoring to God. And listen, sisters, listen to me. You can submit to a man who might be utterly feckless in the area of godly leadership. You can do it. There's a theology for that. It's in Ephesians 5. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, 
Paul's words in Ephesians 5, maybe? Maybe don't obey the gospel itself, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wives, if you find yourself in a situation, your husband's a poor leader, the call of 1 Peter 3 is that you need to win. Not the argument, but the relationship. You can win your husband, even without a word, by your loving example. My sister, you can submit to that man. And no, please know, sisters, that in doing so, you will enjoy the smile of Christ. That is the end of all of our lives, that we would have his blessing, his beatitude, his smile. And you can have that regardless of how Christ-like your husband is. I would have possessed the posture of these words from a hymn written a couple hundred years ago. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied. A mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side. Content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. Content to submit to this poor leader. Content to lose this argument. Content to not realize all the dreams that I had. If thou be glorified. And the final verse. In service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. What a line. In service which thy will appoints. Wives, submit to your husbands. Service which thy will appoints. There are no bonds for me. No restrictions. This isn't some restrictive view. In service which thy will appoints. There are no bonds for me. My secret heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. A life of renouncing self. I don't need to get my way. Don't need to have all of my preferences met. Don't need to have all my dreams realized. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Oh, for that posture. All right, thirdly and finally, moving more quickly here. The picture that we're given in Ephesians 5. The picture. And the picture is this. In a godly marriage and wives submitting to their husbands, what is pictured? It is the church's submission to Christ. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What's pictured in a Christian marriage in which wives submit to their husbands? Well, for the wife's part, she's providing a portrayal of how the church responds lovingly and joyfully to the leadership and the initiative of Christ. And this picture works best when husbands are behaving like Christ. So any concrete examples I give of how to work this out works best when a husband is at least endeavoring to be Christ-like. That's obviously not always the case. Sometimes the picture doesn't entirely fill out. Nonetheless, a godly wife can still endeavor to model the church's submissiveness to Christ in the way she submits to her husband. So let me give you just a few examples. 
How does the church submit to Christ? And how can a wife model that submission within her marriage? Number one, by gladly affirming his headship. By gladly affirming his headship. The church joyfully acknowledges Christ's headship. And so wives, in gladly affirming their husband's headship, can provide that picture to the world. By gladly affirming his headship. as The church loves to affirm the headship of Christ. Wives, affirm the headship of your husband. Number two, by responding to his initiatives. By responding to his initiatives. Christ is the initiator in the relationship between him and his church. It's meant to be similar in marriage. Not that women can never initiate anything. But husbands are meant to be decisive and are meant to take a primary role in the area of initiative in marriage. And wives should be responsive to their husband's godly initiatives. So wives, if your husband comes to you with a vision for how to carry on family devotions, according to this text, you should be responsive to his leadership in that area. If your husband takes the lead in praying with you, you should be cooperative and responsive to his desire to pray with you. If your husband wants to lead the family toward being more hospitable to neighbors and people from the church, you should work with him to that end and be responsive to his initiatives. If your husband comes to you and says, look, I, I just feel this pressure. We need to be more hospitable to our neighbors, to people in the church. We want to more frequently have people in the home. I know that really affects you because I know you do a lot of the cooking and you want to make sure the house is nice. Look, honey, it's okay if we just use paper plates. It's okay if the house is not in tip-top shape. It's more important that we show hospitality. That's going to put some pressure on you wives. The godly wife is responsive to this initiative and this leadership from her husband. Number three, by supporting his priorities. By supporting his priorities. Doesn't the church always have the sense that whatever ought to have the sense that whatever is valuable to Christ is valuable to us? Whatever Christ prizes, we're going to prize. Well, it's similar in marriage. I'm not saying, wives, that if your husband likes football, you just got to get there and somehow enjoy football. Okay? That's superficial. I'm talking about godly priorities. We can reinforce godly priorities. So your husband wants to prioritize more, more time with the family altogether. One of more family time. Well, you should support him in that. Your, ch- your husband wants to organize the family life so that the family can be present at more church meetings. You shouldn't resist that, but support that priority. Your husband wants to prioritize better stewardship of the finances. Don't chafe under that. But be supportive of that priority. I'm going to get behind this vision for financial stewardship. And I'm going to support my husband's priority. Fourthly and finally and very generally. By honoring him. Wives, I just encourage you. Don't cut your husbands down. Don't nag them. Don't speak evil of your husband to your friends or to your children. How would such, such things honor your husband? Don't we have this sense as the church that we want to speak highly of Christ? We want to honor Christ by our speech and by our conduct. It's a good thing to have that posture toward your husband. I want to honor him. I want to speak well of him. I want to do credit to his name, regardless of how worthy he is of that credit. God has called me to honor this husband as Christ. the church honors Christ. All right, in closing now, I know sermons like this raise lots of questions, so I've endeavored to list a few Practical encouragements and practical helps for wives who are sincerely seeking to live out this text in Ephesians 5. And we'll close with these encouragements. Number one, wives, get excited about what God has called you to be. I just kind of want to turn the lights back on on how great it is to be a Christian woman and to be a Christian wife. 
It's a glorious privilege. It's a high calling. You get to play one of the lead roles in this dramatic portrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get to play the church's role. You get to model for the world the church's responsiveness to Christ's gospel initiatives. That's a glorious and high calling. It's a wonderful thing. So many, so many women just think somehow it's less or somehow lame to be a Christian wife. That's not the case. Get excited about it, sisters. This is the will of Christ for you. You can know Christ's smile, and you can model for a watching world the gospel itself in the context of your marriage. So I encourage you, get excited about what God has called you to be. Don't just look at this text and say, well, that's God's will. Look, I'll submit to it, but I'm just going to grit my teeth and get through. That's not a godly posture. God wants us to delight in his will. This is good, sisters. This is good. We should treasure this picture of marriage. Secondly, second encouragement. And I find this to be helpful even as a husband. Sisters, remember, roles within marriage are not a matter of competence. They're a matter of divine assignment. Roles within marriage are not a matter of competence. They're a matter of divine assignment. I know lots of couples where the wife is far more competent than her husband. Let me list a few in this church. No, I'm joking. But their husbands and wives, if they were both interviewed for the same senior management position, an employer would be wise to choose the wife over the husband. But that's not the point. It's not about competence. Some wives, their gifts outstrip their husbands. It's about divine assignment. It's about God's calling. It's about divine order. It's about what pleases Christ. Don't have to know all the reasons. It's about pleasing the Lord and honoring Him. It's not about ego. It's not about what the world values and prizes. It's about going to God's Word and submitting to His will as revealed there. Now, I'm convinced there are lots of wives. I'm not suggesting anything about this particular local church. There are lots of wives who find themselves in relationships where they have to submit to a husband who might be somewhat inadequate or incompetent or just a poor leader. Okay? Now, I am too inexperienced in life and too inexperienced in pastoral ministry to establish what I'm about to say as a general rule. But I will say this. In my experience in churches, this is just my observation. And I think this observation would be vindicated by the testimony of many men, some of whom I asked this week, who have had decades of experience in pastoral ministry. This is the observation that most of the breakdown and most of the heartache and most of the difficulties for women do not arise most often, from husbands who are dictatorial and heavy-handed. Neither do I think that most problems arise from uppity women who have just a burning desire to lead and control their husbands, but find that they're being stifled by a command like this in Ephesians 5. Most problems don't arise with wives who want to lead or men who are dictatorial and oppressive toward their wives. My observation is that the far more common problem is with men who are poor leaders, And women who are languishing under poor and ineffectual leadership. My observation has been that when a wife is crying in her pastor's office, it's far more likely that she is mourning over the lack of godly headship in her life than it is that she is mourning over her oppressive husband who forces her to submit to him when she doesn't want to. Both things happen, by the way. And notice, I didn't say that that one is a bigger problem than the other. 
just said that the other is more common. Listen, husbands being oppressive and dictatorial is a big problem. I'm just saying it's not the most common problem when there is marital discord. The more common problem is wives languishing under poor leadership, in my observation. So I just want to say, if you find yourself in a position where you have to submit to a husband who's a poor leader, there are just a few things I would say to you practically. Number one, sister, remember that Christ knows. Christ knows. There are no mistakes or accidents. The Lord knows. And he's placed you in your marriage by divine assignment for a reason. And that should give you comfort. Won't make you happy today, necessarily, but it should give you comfort that the Lord himself knows that he's there with you. And your responsibility is ultimately to labor for the smile of Christ. And you can do that. Even with a poor husband. Even with an inadequate leader, you can do that. Secondly, I'd say, again, just practically, don't demand that your husband become a more Christ-like leader. I'm just trying to help you with this one. I'm a man. I know how that goes. Don't demand that your husband become a more Christ-like leader. Not least because doing so is counterproductive. You want him to lead, not to just acquiesce to, to being nagged. Okay? Don't demand that your husband be a better leader. It's counterproductive. Leadership, sisters, has to come from inside of him. That leads to my third practical word of advice. Pray for him without ceasing. Pray for him without ceasing. Learn how to celebrate and affirm every small and incremental step your husband makes toward progress in this area. Sisters, don't, don't nag him into leadership. Love him into leadership. Affirm what's good. Bless him and praise him for his, the graces that God has given to him. Acknowledge where he's showing success. And then love him into greater pastures and greater fields of godly male leadership and headship. Love him into leadership. The final word of advice I would give, and you'll just have to test, sisters, if this is presently wise or something you should do later. When neither of you is tired and neither of you is angry, it's not at the end of a heated argument. When neither of you is tired, neither of you is angry, Ask him to go out to lunch and pour out your heart's desire to him. Without ultimatums, not, you don't get your act together, I'm out of here. Or I'll be depressed the rest of my life. Not that. But you're not tired, you both got a good night's sleep. You're not fighting. Maybe you're enjoying life together at that time. Take your husband out to lunch. I just want to open up my heart to you. I I want us to do better. As a couple. For the glory of Christ. And for the display of his gospel. And then the final practical encouragement now. Sisters. And this is true of husbands as well. Don't just provide the picture. Preach the message. Don't just provide the picture of Christ in the church. Preach the message. Courtney and Jill are friends and have been friends for many years. Courtney is a Christian and Jill is not. Courtney is married to Derek, who imperfectly endeavors to be a Christ-like husband. Jill has observed over the years that there is a great deal of difference between Courtney's marriage and her own. 
She's heard Courtney praising her husband and talking about how she wants to be responsive to Derek's leadership and has even used the word submission a time or two. So Jill asked Courtney, why do you talk about roles within marriage and Derek being a leader in the relationship and you supporting his headship? Why does he treat you the way he does? Why do you respond the way you do? I don't really understand it, but I want to. So Courtney says, well, Jill, I'm really appreciative and thankful you've asked. One thing I really want you to know is that I don't submit to Derek's headship ultimately because Derek is such a great guy. He is a great guy, but that's not the point. The main reason why I want to follow Derek's leadership is because I know that Christ, my Savior, and my God is pleased when I do so. He's given me this assignment to honor and affirm Derek's leadership, regardless of how great a leader he turns out to be. And so I want to honor Christ by honoring my husband. But Jill, there's more. See, Derek and I have this awareness that our marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel we believe The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done and loved to lay down his life so that men and women could be saved. And the church represents those people who have responded to his gospel. Now, Jill, this is where our marriage comes in. Not that we do it perfectly, but there is a picture we want to display. And that is that just as Christ laid down his life for the church, so Derek seeks to lay down his life for me and lovingly serve and protect and lead me. And as I love him and respond to his leadership, I'm seeking to portray how the church loves Christ and responds to him. So I seek to affirm Derek's leadership. I seek to respond to his initiatives. I seek to support his priorities. And most importantly, I seek to honor Derek. The reason we do these things is because the gospel informs our marriage. And though we're imperfect, we want to live out and model that same gospel. By the way, Joe. Do you believe the gospel? That Christ Jesus came into the world and gave his life on the cross in order to save his people from their sins. And that he rose from the dead in triumph over sin and death. And that he offers himself to you, Jill, as a savior. You know, all you have to do is repent of your sin and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and you can be saved. More than that, Jill, maybe one day you can be a part of a marriage that models this gospel. Preach that. When you're asked. Preach that when you're not asked. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would give us the posture of that song that was quoted some moments ago. You give to each one of us a will intent on pleasing you. Teach us to know what it means that a life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Help us to love your will, to treasure your will, and to obey your will sweetly and gladly that we might know the smile of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.